As we already expressed a few moments ago, we're so happy that you're here with us this morning. It's always a joy and a privilege to be able to gather together to worship the God of heaven on the Lord's Day. And we hope and trust that as we might study together this morning, that something we say, as we've said, will be a source of strength and encouragement. You'll leave here and you'll say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. As I announced during the announcements, please don't forget, next Lord's Day we'll be having our covered dish lunch immediately following the the services. And we want you to come and be here and stay and and make your plans to be a, a part of that. For a few moments this morning as we study from God's Word, the first thing we want to do is look at an incident that occurred in the life of God's people. The children of Israel had spent 40, 400, excuse me, 400 years in slavery in Egypt. After those four centuries of slavery, God raised up a deliverer for the descendants of Abraham. That deliverer was an 80-year-old tongue-tied shepherd by the name of Moses. One day he's tending his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of nowhere, and then the next day he's standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in all the world, demanding that he let God's people go. God brought plagues, blight, and even death on the Egyptians until Pharaoh let them go. As they journeyed from Egypt toward the promised land, they came to the Red Sea. And when they came to the Red Sea, God miraculously dried up the Red Sea for them. He allowed His people to cross on dry land. And then, Pharaoh's army is following, and God closed the waters and drowned Pharaoh, His army, and all of them. So Israel had seen it firsthand. The power of God. And having seen the power of God firsthand, and the great work that He had done for them in Egypt, they feared the Lord and His servant Moses. You go to Exodus chapter 15, and you read there that God miraculously made the bitter poisoned waters of Merah sweet and drinkable, so His people could be refreshed and quench their thirst. Everything that God had done for His people had been done to show that God genuinely cared for His people. That He could and He always would take care of them. But guess what? After all that God has done for them, we come to our text in Exodus chapter 16. And you know what we find? We find God's people grumbling and complaining. They had been the recipients of so much of God's gifts and God's grace. But listen to it. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sinai, which is between Elam and wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses 
and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full, you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they shall bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At even, then you shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for that He heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings which you murmur against Him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us but against the Lord. God had showed them so much miraculous provisions. God had shown the children of Israel so much loving care. And yet, what do we find? We find them grumbling, complaining, griping. You know, among non-Christians, complaining is just a normal part of life. I've actually known some folks that have brought complaining almost up to an art form. But for Christians, for people who believe the God of heaven provides our needs, it is spiritually wrong. Let's be honest about something. Most people are attracted to positive, upbeat, optimistic people. They shun negative, pessimistic, downers as people. So when Christian people grumble and bellyache and complain, they turn people off to the Lord. And they turn people off to the church. But when Christians are happy, when Christians are optimistic, they make the Lord attractive, they make themselves attractive, and they make the church attractive. Happy, joyous, optimistic, upbeat Christians invite people to the Lord by the lives that they live. Because their life is a recommendation of Jesus Christ. And their life is a recommendation of the church that Jesus gave His life for. Here's what Paul would write in the Philippian letter. Chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, 
rejoice. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote that Philippian letter? He was in Rome. He was in prison when he wrote that letter. And here is this man of God in prison, and he writes to a church in Philippi, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. He tells the brethren in Philippi in that letter that his circumstances in prison are actually helping to further the cause of Jesus Christ. Sometimes sit down and read that Philippian letter if you've never done it. And don't read a few verses. Sit down and forget the chapter markings, forget the verse markings. Remember it was a letter Paul wrote to a church that he loved and he loved dearly. And read it as a letter. And you'll find that the Philippian letter is a letter that's filled with hope, optimism, and joy. Paul the Apostle could practice the joy of the Lord even in prison. He was able to look beyond his confinement. He was able to look beyond his lonely nights and his hardships. And the whole theme of Philippians can be summed up in two short sentences. I rejoice, you rejoice. I've known folks so pessimistic about the future, so worried about what tomorrow might hold, they wouldn't even buy green bananas. Personally, I like what Browning wrote in Rabbi Ben Ezra. Come grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. I read about a dear lady one time that was in her 92nd year. And they, someone asked her, said, Auntie, what do you think of Browning's statement? She said, I keep five different medical specialists busy. She said, when I think of that, I think maybe Browning overstated it just a little. Old age is not for sissies. And then she said with a twinkle in her eye, I'll tell you one thing. I'd rather spend these years with a man who said, come grow old along with me, the best is yet to be than spend it with some crotchety old coot that can only sit by the window and curse his fate. Come grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. That's what Paul said when he says rejoice in the Lord always. And one of the brethren probably at Philippi says, Paul, you already told us to do that. He did. In chapter 3, he said, rejoice in the Lord. And I can hear one of those brethren say, Paul, you've already told us that. And I can hear Paul say, yeah, I know I've told you already. I'm telling you again. Rejoice in the Lord. Joy is a very important part and element in Christian duty. And joy is one of the most elusive things in our life in the 21st century. Part of the problem that we have with finding joy. Part of the problem we have with the elusiveness of joy is that we misunderstand joy. In our humanity, we tend to equate happiness with joy. 
But those two things are totally different ideas. Because those two things spring from entirely different sources. One of those things comes from the world around me. The other one originates directly from the Spirit of the living God inside of me. Happiness is conditioned on and dependent on what is happening to me. If people treat me good, if things are going well in my life, then I'm happy. But if my circumstances aren't favorable, if people are being mean to me and things aren't going well, then I'm not happy. But if we look to the Scriptures, we see that joy is not dependent on what's going on in the world around me. Rather, joy is a profound, compelling quality of life. Joy transcends the events, the disasters that may dog God's people. Joy is a divine dimension of living that is not shackled by the circumstances around me. That Philippian letter, folks, is a challenging letter. You know, we oftentimes fail to realize the blessings that we as Christians have in the kingdom of God. The blessings that we find in this life and the blessings that we find even more in the life to come. I want to read a few verses after that fourth verse of Philippians 4. Now keep in mind, these are the words of a prisoner, the Apostle Paul. One of the most severely persecuted and yet happiest men that ever lived. In, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will dwell in your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now skip down to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. Now listen to it. I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. You know, there's a lot of mistaken folks in our world. You've heard me talk about them from time to time. I've met a lot of them. Who think that Christianity is somber and sober and sad. But it's not. It's a joyous experience. And that passage commands us to rejoice. 
Christianity not only tells us to rejoice, it teaches us how to rejoice. Because according to Webster's Dictionary, rejoice means to feel great delight. In other words, it means to be unusually happy. It means to have a wonderful, buoyant feeling inside of oneself. And folks, that's the attitude that Christianity should mirror in our lives, in our conversations, and yes, in our faces. We should not walk around as people of God with a face long enough to eat oats out of a churn. We just shouldn't do it. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. You go back to the book of Acts. Read the accounts of the conversions in the book of Acts. And you'll find it a very refreshing and enjoyable experience. You'll find it to be interesting and impressive. It's especially interesting and impressive to see those conversions from the point of view of the one converted. Because over and over the story ends with the new Christian rejoicing. The account in Acts chapter 8 of the Ethiopian nobleman is an excellent example of this. you remember what happened after Philip preached Jesus to this man? In Acts 8, we've got the story of a man that had gone nearly a thousand miles. He'd gone from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. He'd gone to worship God according to the Old Testament system. And he's on his way back to Ethiopia. And suddenly and unexpectedly for this Ethiopian, this hitchhiking deacon comes along by the name of Philip from Jerusalem. And he got up in the chariot and he preached him a sermon about Jesus. And it says they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? If you believe, you may. They stopped the chariot. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They got down. They went to the water. Philip and the eunuch, he baptized him. And what does it say? It says, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way totally depressed. Oh, somebody's awake. It says he went on his way rejoicing. It's a beautiful sight. This man had come from the dark continent of Africa. His life was so changed after he gave himself to Jesus Christ that he returned with a heart overflowing with joy. Another example is the Jerusalem church at its very beginning in Acts chapter 2. Dr. Luke tells us that all those Christians in Jerusalem ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. It was a great, happy, joyous band of people in Jerusalem because they belonged to Jesus Christ. Because they were Christians. The apostles, even though they were severely persecuted, the apostles rejoiced. Acts chapter 5, we find the apostles have been in prison. And they were released by the Sanhedrin. And when they were released by the Sanhedrin, what does it tell us about them in Acts 5? It says they rejoiced 
Why did they rejoice? Because they got out of jail? No, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison in Philippi? That's when we have the beginning of this church that this letter was written to. That jailer in Philippi rejoiced greatly, it says, with all of his house, having believed God. That that jailer in Philippi, folks, that was a man we would have never expected to become a Christian. And yet having become a Christian, this man of a pagan Gentile background, was touched by the example of Paul and Silas singing in prison at midnight. He was moved by the gospel that they preached. And when he he was baptized and became a child of God, it says he rejoiced greatly. And we believe that this man became a pillar of strength in that Philippian church. A church that, as we read a moment ago, long remembered Paul with their prayers and with their gifts. And when you think about this, rejoice in the Lord always. I want to convey the meaning that spiritual blessings of God are only in Jesus Christ. It's true God makes the Sun to rise on the evil and the good and the sins reign on the just and the unjust. And it's also true that God's physical blessings of this world are given both to the evil and good, to the non-Christian as well as the Christian. But that's not true when it comes to spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings are only in Christ Jesus. Actually, that's made crystal clear by Paul in the Ephesian letter. In chapter 1, verses 3, 5, and 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, having foreordained us into adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, in whom we have our redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We rejoice, folks. We rejoice because of the certainty of what we are doing. It's a wonderful feeling to know that in becoming a Christian, we've done exactly what is prescribed by the Lord and the apostles in the long ago. If somebody stopped us on the street today, right here in Center, Texas, and said, how do you know you're a Christian? We could be able to read to that individual from the New Testament. Of thus saith the Lord for everything we've done. And we would simply read our title clear by pointing out the steps that the early disciples took in becoming Christians. And in the same manner, we could read from this book, A thus saith the Lord for every act of worship in which we engaged in this morning. Because everything was practiced in the New Testament manner. It's a wonderful feeling. The certainty of knowing that we follow the blueprint of what God has prescribed. We rejoice knowing that the wonderful promises of God are waiting for us.
the physical needs of our bodies, and even life itself are things we can leave to the Lord without anguish or worry. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us not to be anxious about the things of this life, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear. And we remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 28, when Paul said, All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. For us, it comes as a great reassurance to know that all things work together for our good. They may be crushing in some ways sometimes, but it works together for our good. And that as all things work together for our good, that when death finally does come, it simply hastens the day when we'll have a body ready for eternity. Truly, the promises of God that we read in this book give us, you and me, as Christians, they give us a cause for rejoicing. It's a wonderful blessing to be in the Lord and to know that those blessings are for us. We're told to rejoice always. Pull that word apart and it becomes always. We are to rejoice in the Lord in all ways. Physically, for God has promised to take care of us. Mentally, because we're told not to be anxious and we're told not to worry. And spiritually, because God has told us He's going to forgive our sins and save our souls in heaven. Now this word always primarily applies to time. And here's what it means. It means that the Christian is not only happier than the non-Christian in this life, but the Christian is also happier throughout all of eternity than the non-Christian. Our rejoicing. Paul said rejoice always. Our rejoicing is not just for this life. Our rejoicing is for the life to come. Remember who you are. Christian, You're a child of the King, an heir to heaven. And as Christians, we should never let anything cause us to be discouraged or downhearted. We just need to remember who we are and remember where we're going. To those that are not Christians, we tell those folks to believe on the Lord, repent of your sins, be baptized for the remission of those sins and then you can say rejoice in the Lord always and then some folks have done that but haven't lived God's kind of life and need to come home and let brothers and sisters pray with them and for them and here's the great question that I ask so often is Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life if Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life then He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. And I don't know what is going on in your world. I don't know if there are changes you need to make or not, but if there are changes you need to make, 
for Jesus to be the Lord and Master of your life, this is your opportunity to do that. As together we stand and while we sing.